Good morning, everyone. I am Reverend Wendy Silvers, and you have arrived at the Awakened Mother Show. This is a show that is dedicated to uncensored, unfunded dialogues with moms, dads, leading edge scientists, biologists, people that are experts in their field from diverse backgrounds who are dedicated to helping you be the best mom that you can be and also to be, uh, to be the best person that you can be. So I invite you to just sit back, get out your journal. We have an amazing show for you today. I want to share with you, and I also want to precede this with what you hear on this show is not medical advice, not giving you medical advice. You get to do your own research, which is absolutely important for you to do. And this is, these are the opinions of the people that are expressed here. So you get to receive this information and then you get to assimilate it and apply it, integrate it and see where it lives for you. I can tell you one thing, my commitment to you is providing evidential truth and inspirational information to allow you to have a different experience of your life and your life as a parent, if you are a parent or if you are reparenting yourself. So you get to have that experience. So here we go. My guest today is a mom who truly uh, represents the fierce heart of the mother. And Raha, Raja, Ma, okay, will you help me say your name? Marhaba. Raja, Raja Marhaba. Marhaba. I yes. did it. Yes. Did it right. Thank you for, for helping me with that. So she is a mom who was called to step in and be there for her children in a way that she may never have ever imagined. And so today, She's going to share her experience with championing her two sons who uh, are, I'm going to say differently abled. Mm -hmm. They have, they have special, they, they required special attention for their unique representations of the way that their brain works. And so I was introduced to Raja, um, by, by a mutual uh, acquaintance. And when I heard about all of the things that she went through to obtain the care and attention that her sons needed, and then how she has a nonprofit and a book, and she works with, with parents all around the country to help them uh, obtain IEPs and, and make sure that the kids get what they need. So help me welcome to the stage, Raja Marhaba. <laughs> Thank I'm you so much. <laughs> That's a great introduction. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So when did you first realize that you were going to have to get involved with your kids and be, and be their advocate? Oh, that did not come until Jonathan. I have two children with, um, just to give you an identification of who they are. I have uh, a 31-year-old Jonathan and a 33-year-old Omar. And my journey started 26 years ago. And in pre-KK, I knew Jonathan was having challenges in the school district because he would be biting a kid, sticking a, thing, a, a pencil in their skin. I was, oh, Mrs. Marhaba, come to the office. It was constant every day. Mrs. Marhaba, your son did something. 
Omar was a little bit more um, mellow. He was my saving grace, or, mm. although I thought he was my saving grace at the time. But I didn't start advocating or really understanding it until Jonathan, we were in private schools. And then the private school teacher said, I think you need to transition your son, Jonathan, into the public school because we cannot help him in the private school. And when I asked her why, he would be um, standing outside the classroom door crying, didn't want to go into the classroom, go under the teacher's desk. He really had a hard time acclimating and adjusting in um, pre-K and K. So I ended up taking him to the public school and I transitioned his brother, Omar, to make the commute easier for me. And we started and I, she gave me a referral note, teacher gave me a reference note saying, hey, take this to this principal and tell them you need an IEP. I had no idea what an IEP is. An IEP is an individual education plan. And it is actually a legal contract between the student family and the school district. That's what an IEP is. It gives you the rights to ask for services that the school has to provide for the child if the child's not meeting academic curriculum social, emotional, behavioral in the the classroom environment. I had no idea what all this meant back then. I went and I did everything they wanted me to do. They assessed Jonathan. We had an IEP meeting. It was me, one parent with six or seven teachers, school paid staff in the room. And it's really intimidating because they give you all these reports. You don't understand what the reports mean. All your, all I was hearing at that time is Jonathan can't read. Jonathan can't do this. Jonathan has got behavioral problems. Jonathan mm. is not focusing. And I never heard anything good. What, mm. what goodness did my son do other than all these negativities you're throwing at me in this room? And then they, they gave me a psychoeducational report. That was what a psychologist um, assessed him. And that consists of social, emotional, behavioral, cognitive, and academic areas of testing. They gave me speech and language report. They gave me occupational therapy report. They gave me an academic report. I mean, when, and sometimes I didn't get the reports four or five days prior to the meeting. I would have it the day Mm -hmm. of the meeting, the day before the meeting. And as a novice mom, 26 years back, I don't know what all the data means. And I just was at the mercy of the school system saying, okay, if this is what my son needs, if this is what you're saying he needs, I'm I'm all for it. Where, where, Where do I sign? What do I do? And it went okay, although I thought. And then this continued for, you know, kindergarten, first grade. And then in first grade, they were telling me Jonathan can't read the alphabets. He only learned 11 letters of the alphabets. And I says, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to have to retain him. Had I known back then that they have Lyndon Mood Bell, Orthon Gillingham, specific reading multi-syllable um, programs, I probably would have not retained him. But I, again, I was a novice mom and I did not know any better. And you know, he's, you know, first grade only knows 11 letters of the alphabets. Most kids know this in pre-K and K. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up retaining him. It was one of the biggest mistakes I've done because Jonathan made me pay for that all his schooling till today. Mm -hmm. And he's 31 today. He thought that I stole a year from him. When I hear what you're saying, what it reminds me of is how we are indoctrinated so subtly and also overtly to not listen to ourselves and to listen to the perceived authorities in front of us. And concurrent with that is how much trust is the fabric of parenting. You know, you go, you bring your kids into this 
educational uh, institution and you trust that they're truly there in service to the highest and the best of the children in front of them. Correct. And, Correct. Right. And then you, you let go of or abandon or downplay, right? Dial down your inner wisdom that that's saying to you, mm, there is something not right here. This just is not lining up. And, you know, my, my, um, my sense of what's real and what's true about my child. Right. It's 100% on point. And before I left the private school to the public school, the private school teacher told me, Mrs. Marhaba, I want to give you one piece of advice. And I said, what is that? And she said, just remember this, you are your bet your, your son's best advocate, and nobody knows your children better than you. And you Absolutely. are right on point with what you just said. Absolutely. I have the goosebumps because that has been for me in the work that I do, because I've been working with moms and families and kids for 23 years and counting. And I'm also a, a love activist or a freedom activist. So I really believe in choice and freedom and connecting with your inner wisdom and following that. And it's just been so evident, the through line that I've seen, especially with moms, is the diminishing and the discounting, myself included, was a learning curve for me to go, hey, wait, <laughs> wait, 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 this wisdom, this mother's intuition, it is a real thing. So I hear what you're saying, but it's not lining up with what I'm sensing, feeling, and knowing. It's true. And then there's intimidation. I mean, imagine yes. one parent with six, seven school paid staff employees. And I'm not a psychologist, a speech and language therapist, an occupational therapist. I'm none of the above. I'm not an educator. I'm a mom. All I know how to do is protect my children and make sure that, that they're getting what they need from school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't... All that I thought I knew, I knew zero because I, right. I was at the mercy of the school district. And so because of the intimidation and so many people in the class in that meeting that are, are you know, they have more experience than I do, or I have no experience in those areas, I, I am at their mercy. I want them to tell me what to do. How do I help my son? What programs do I need to have for them? And that's what they started to give me. And we, we did the IEP and he ended up getting retained. And then a year later, he went through the first four months of schooling, they had a turnaround of special education teachers. And so he needed, you know, these children need structure, they need consistency, they need stab stability. Well, Jonathan had a whole bunch of teachers coming in for, for the first four months of that school year, the second time in first grade. And in the fourth month, the teacher calls me and says, Mrs. Marhaba, you have to come. We have to have a meeting. When I went there, I said to her, what's going on? And she says, well, do you know your son, Jonathan, can't read? <laughs> Won't read? I said, what? And I says, well, it took you four months to figure out that my son can't read in your classroom and you're with him every day. How does that happen? And she says, well... We have, um, you know, in, in school, they have a, like a half a table a desk for the children and the children sit on opposite side of the teacher and you have four or five kids and then they read. And back then it was spot, run, spot, run. It was, you know, the two, three letter words back then. <laughs> and so they would go, each child would read a page in the book, maybe a sentence or two. And so, uh, and Jonathan was the last 
child to read. And so when it came to his turn, he knew everything beautifully. And she kept on thinking that he reads beautifully. And one day she noticed that he was looking at her eyes and not looking at the paper and reading really beautifully. So then she says to him, she turned the page and she said, now read that page in front of me and tell me, tell me. And he looked at her and she says, no, look at the page. And he couldn't read. And that's mm -hmm. when she figured out that he can't read. He was memorizing the stories until it came to him. This little seven-year-old boy had high intelligence and he wanted to, to have a, you did it great, Jonathan, just like she was doing for all the other children. And he knew he couldn't read. So he was compensating his deficit by uh, improvising and memorizing the story. So when it came to him, he can have good boy, Jonathan, you did really great, but he doesn't know how to read. So he masked it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that that's so heartbreaking to hear because what it speaks to is how important it is for a child and actually every human to feel loved, appreciated, accepted, acknowledged. He wanted to feel that because I'm imagining, you can tell me if this is accurate or not, that he probably heard a lot of what he didn't do and couldn't do and wasn't doing. Sure. And he he wanted to feel good. He he did want to feel good. And what I didn't understand back then, um, after he didn't get a full assessment, the school assessed him, but there's a big difference between a private assessment and a public assessment. Sometimes the teachers are credentialed and the assessors do a really great job. And sometimes they're not seasoned, they're not credentialed. Even the seasoned ones make mistakes. I don't not calling out teachers or anything. I'm just saying we're human and some of them do great jobs and some of them don't do such great jobs. And back then I didn't know what all the numbers meant. And all I knew that my son can't read why he can't read. I don't know. So then I ended up getting him. I, there was no attorneys, by the way, no special education advocates. There was no resources, mm -hmm. no Google back then. And the school would not allow the parents to network and talk about if who has a special needs child, who's getting what service so that we can get services for our own children. That was prohibited back then. And so then I started to go to the library and asking questions. And it turns out there are special education attorneys, there are advocates, there are um, resources out there. And this was all done on paper or me just talking to parents that I think their children might have some sort of a, a special need and asking, hey, this is what's happening with me. And slowly I started to learn more. And then um, we ended up having another IEP throughout because we wanted to figure out how to get Jonathan to read. And before that IEP, something told me from talking to these parents um, to call, there's something called procedural safeguards in, in the under Individual Disability Education Act, IDEA, which is federal special education law. And so I went and called procedural safeguards up north in Sacramento. And I said, hey, I'm having an IEP. My son can't read. This is what's happening in school. Is there any services, anything you can provide for me? So the procedural safeguard person who's a program specialist, and they're authorized to make decisions on behalf of the school district, says to me, look, based on what you're telling me, when you go to the IEP tomorrow, tell them that I'm approving, I believe it was two hours of tutoring a day for a year at a non-public agency. A non-public agency is a credentialed agency that have licensed therapist, educational therapists to help remediate the reading, to help him get back on track. Mm -hmm. The next day I went to the IEP and we went through the whole spiel and 
the principal says, this is our offer of FAPE. FAPE is a free and appropriate public education. We're going to offer this for your child. We're going to give him one hour of tutoring a, a week, I, I think for a year. And then I stopped her and I said, what happened to two hours a week for a year? And then she says, well, this is all we have. And I said to her, well, you know, I just spoke with a program specialist up in Sacramento. Here's the number, here's the name, here's the data. Why don't you call her and confirm what I'm telling you? The principal stepped out of the room, called the program specialist, came back and said, Mrs. Marhaba, we apologize. I made a mistake. I meant to say two hours for a whole year. That's <laughs> the pivot point in my life when I realized that I'm being taken, that I'm they're not, you said, go with your gut feeling as a mom. Uh, and that's where the mama bear in me came out. That's where uh, I started to see red. And if the school district is doing this to me and lying to me about, my God, he's seven years old and you're going to take that away from him. And it's your fault that he's here to begin with, right? It's you, you guys did it. And so then from that point forward, I became more skeptical. I did more research. I advocated stronger. I learned. I educated myself because I no longer trusted in the school. And then he still was not progressing. He was not up to par. We ended up giving him a psychoeducational assessment by a private assessor. By then, I ended up having advocates. And then I ended up hiring an attorney because he was reversing. He was not progressing. And he was... By the time maybe eight or nine years old, he was three or four years behind grade level. By the time he was in. Did you six, have your other son? Excuse me. Did you have your other son at that time too? Yes. But the other son, we didn't find out there was something going on with him until the fourth grade because mm. both boys have Almost ADHD. Almost at the same time, it sounds like. Yes. Both boys have ADHD. Jonathan has hyperactive. Jonathan, uh, Omar is in inattentive. So that means he can zone out. He's in classroom, but he's not hyper, but he's not paying attention. Jonathan is so hyper, he cannot pay attention. And both boys are considered twice exceptional. So they have a high IQ. They're twice exceptional, highly gifted and learning disabled. So their IQs are over 145, but Jonathan is severely dyslexic and is OCD and has amblyopia. He's got a lazy eye. And Omar is ADHD, also an IQ over 145, but he's got reading, not reading, writing and vocabulary deficits and depression. And this did not come out until the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. So as I'm fighting for Jonathan, pre-KK, first grade, second grade, third grade, I'm thinking Omar is my saving grace. He's in a good spot. I don't have to worry about him. Wrong. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed with everything I was going on with Jonathan that I failed, failed to see what was going on with Omar. And Omar was getting more and more depressed. I didn't even see it. I found out Omar was going through depression when we were in the car driving. And you know how they have, um, the radio says, if you have all these symptoms of depression, that means you have depression. He must've been 10 years old. And he goes, mom, I said, yeah. He goes, did you listen to all those items that the radio said? And I said, yeah. He goes, I feel that. That's how mm -hmm. I feel. That's when I found out what was going on with Omar. And then we ended up getting him tested. But before we go to Omar with Jonathan, I just want the your viewers to understand how important these assessments are because they, they tell us what's going on within the confinements of how the brain is wired. Um, so Jonathan had a, 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 a psychoeducational assessment. And when I met with the psychologist, the psychologist said, gee, your son's got an IQ over 145, but his reading ability is 67. Mm. 
Many years ago, 67 was in the mentally retarded range. Today, we call it intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. But if you see my son, he looks perfectly normal. He doesn't look mentally retarded or intellectually disabled because we can't, it's like the invisible disability. We can't see it from the inside, but we see the person from the outside. They look fine, but we have no idea what's happening within the confinements of the brain. And so in uh, standard scoring, you have a hundred as the medium, just to give mm-hmm. you a visual, mm-hmm. 145 IQ is extremely superior, but his reading ability is 67. He's several grade levels below in reading as compared to his IQ level, how smart he is. So can you imagine this little kid that he's got high comprehension, high IQ, Mm -hmm. can't read, severely dyslexic, and he thinks he's stupid. Now you have behavioral problems kicking in. That must be, I mean, because when you have that kind of intelligence, like the, that native intelligence, I'm imagining that he was aware of what was going on. It wasn't like he was unaware and he probably felt so lost and helpless and unheard, like unseen, unheard. And the cost to you, Raja, will you talk about what that cost you emotionally in your marriage? I went through with both kids. Omar was bullied by his sixth grade teacher and ended up having a whole bunch of problems with school. And he got his body aches. He he ended up getting physically sick, seriously, physically sick, not purposely that he he wanted to get sick, but his body was fighting. He was so depressed. He didn't want to go to school. And so every time he went to school, I'd go pick him up and he was sick. He had a fever. He had a stomach ache. I'd go to the doctor and they'd confirm it. It just, he was in a bad environment. And I was at the point where I would wake up at two, three in the morning, go to Jonathan's bed, sit at and cry my heart out. There was not one stone I didn't turn to try to figure out what was under it. I had no idea how to help this kid. The school wasn't helping me. We ended up doing a due process on both children. We did a due process on Jonathan. It was amended four times. A due process on Omar, it was amended four times. It was eight, eight lawsuits on two children for about eight years with Uh, the second largest school district in the nation. And um, my husband at the time, we're divorced today. My husband at the time um, wanted to be a millionaire. That was his ambition. Mm -hmm. Well, how can he be a millionaire if the lawyers need $20,000 retainer fee? They need educational therapy. They need five, $10,000 psychoeducational assessments. I, the lawyers wanted us to come up with our own private documents, reports so that they have something to go against the school district and do hearing. And Omar's case ended up going to Ninth Circuit Federal Court. And I'll get into that in a minute, not Jonathan. Jonathan ended up getting non-public schooling, which the school district paid a private school to educate my son. Jonathan got an Ivy League education for elementary, middle and high school. And he dual enrolled in high school and college. Um, And Omar Jr., he was a 504 plan student, which is just accommodations. It's not an IEP. IEP, they provide services as occupational therapy and speech and language and educational therapy. They said that he was just too smart. He was a social butterfly and there's nothing wrong with him. He's just a behavioral problem child. They wouldn't give it to him, yet he was struggling in school dramatically, mm-hmm. socially, emotionally, behaviorally, academically. He was just shutting down. And so when we went to due process on both kids, the school district decided to give Jonathan 
the non-public school. So he, they paid for a private school for him to go and get this education, smaller classrooms, no more than 10 to 15 students, two teachers per classroom. He and the, the, the services for dyslexia, he got everything he needed to, um, to progress, but Omar did not. The school decided that there's nothing wrong with him, so we're not going to give in. And we ended up going to the school level as an IEP level. We went to the state level with Omar's case, which is a 504 plan case. It's an eligibility case. And then we ended up to uh, go to the state level, and the state did a 50-50 split between um, Omar, the, the school and us, the parents. And um, both attorneys appealed and went to Ninth Circuit Federal Court. That's how we got there. So we go from the school level to the state level to Ninth Circuit Federal Court. When we got there, the the judge reviewed the case and he said to um, my husband at the time, said, I want to meet with you and your attorneys behind closed chambers. They went behind closed chambers and the judge told my attorney and my husband that although you guys have a good case, I'm not going to rule on the case. I'm going to remand it back to the state level. And I want the state judge to make the final decision because the state judge did a 50-50 split. When they asked him, why are you doing this? They said, because I'm not going to be the first judge on a national level to set case precedence by the Marhaba's lawsuit to open up the floodgates that every attorney in the nation can actually use your lawsuit, because now it's case precedence, to open up the doors and transfer a 504 plan converted into an IEP, which lawyers would be using it. It would have made history. Wow. So I'm remanding it back to the state and let the state judge make the final decision. So the state judge said, I'm going to order the Marhabas to have the school do a psychoeducational assessment for Omar and then go back to the IEP and let the IEP make a decision. Well, I went from, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars here between two, yeah. two kids, yeah. therapies, lawyers, lawyers, witness fees, legal fees, um, schools, this, the non-public schools are $55,000 a year. They're not cheap. And I'm pulling money out of the business with my husband. We had to sell our home. We downgraded our lifestyle. I had a lot of marriage problems. I neglected my husband. I focused on my children. All I saw was red and I was knee deep with the attorneys because I, I was married to them at this point, right? There's wow. a lot of money at stake. And so I was broken. And I, one day went to the church, I'm close to my faith. And I went to the church and my whole life's falling apart. I have a seven digit lawsuit for two children. I have two children on hold until the, the cases get settled. I have a husband that's pissed off at me because I'm taken away from his dream, his ambitions. And I went to church. I went to the tabernacle, went on my knees and I just prayed to God. And I says, if you get me out of this mess, help my kids and just take my soul, you know, I'll make a pact, have my soul. I, I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't wow. care. Wow. I, was, I was very broken. I was in a very dark place. I, like, I had nowhere to turn and I didn't see the light. The light wasn't coming anywhere soon. And, and, then, and, and then, then to fast forward, you created the nonprofit, you have a book you yes. work with other parents. It's almost like you were able to move through this many year dark night of the soul to be of service. I'm going to cough. Hold on one second.
<sighs> okay. So how can people reach you? People, I mean, what a service you offer. I um, want people to be able to connect with you. How can they do that? Two different ways. One, um, if they're low income and they're struggling, they can go to the Jonathan Foundation dot r org that's j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n and get me through there and and email me or they can go to unstoppableadvocacy.com for families that um can afford to pay a fee go through that route and the fee is really really cheap compared to the knowledge base that i bring to the table it's not about making money it's about families understanding my value and what i bring more than it is about making money um, but then they can also, anybody can go to unstoppableadvocacy.com and get a free book, free copy of my book. They can just download it. They can just put their information in and download it. And when the families read my story, there is an abundance amount of resources in that book that will help them without me, um, without me giving them um, information because that book is supposed to be a resource for them. And if they really need help, there's emails and contact information in the book. When they download it, they can go on the website and they can um, email me that way. There's like whatever the families need. If I can be of assistance, I'm happy to be of assistance. They can just read out, reach out. And I'm sure after they read the book that they will connect on many different levels. Both sons, my sons co-authored the book with me. So you will get... Uh, their personal stories from their perspective. So you get a parent's perspective and the children's perspective in that book. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for, for taking your personal hardship and, and transforming it into service to assist other people. I can only imagine what it went, what you went through. And I'm very grateful that I was introduced to you. And I really appreciate what you do and the commitment that you have um, to help other people and to share your story. And I believe you're also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, mm -hmm. LinkedIn. Um, one quick thing to the, the moms and the dads out there. I uh, just finished having a fundraiser a couple of days ago for the nonprofit, the Jonathan Foundation. And I made a speech. My speech was about the the dads who are the forgotten ones in the marriage because we, the moms, are the protectors and the dads are the providers. In my culture, a Middle Eastern, that's how it is. Everybody's a little bit different. But nonetheless, the dads are affected in the special education journey, both mom and dad and this, the typical sibling and the special education child. Everybody is affected. And back then, I did not think to to see what my husband was going through with his feelings, his internal struggles as a man, because I just wanted money, money, money. The lawyers wanted money, money, money. And, I, and he was working his tail off to bring money, money, money. And I never thought about what he's going through emotionally. So I love for the moms to take a step back and recognize the husbands, the dads. It's, it's a whole family unit that has to work together in tandem to have success. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. It's so vital. I know in my work as well, it's so important to include the dad. And, and I thank you. I thank you for that. I thank you for what you do. I thank you for coming here and sharing your wisdom and your experience and hope. 
for people. So I will make sure that everyone has access to you and can contact you. And everyone, thank you for being with us today. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Awakened Mother. And just a gentle reminder to join us this Mother's Day weekend, Friday and Saturday, for The Awakened Heart of the Mother, permission to embody your influence, which Raja is just so beautifully articulated in her in her walk with her sons and create a powerful legacy. So I'll make sure that link is there. And remember this, you are powerful beyond measure, loved beyond description, and a force for good in the world. So go forth and spread your magic. There's no one more your than you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for those kind words. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. My pleasure.